We are in a series in the book of John, and today we're going to be wrapping up John chapter 5, and we got some work to do. We got some ground to cover. It's a long chapter, and it's actually a sermon or a uh, almost more like a trial defense that Jesus is going to offer to the accusations of the religious leaders, and it's really dense, and it's real theological, so I need you to strap on your thinking caps and pay attention here today. And to get us there, let me just, uh, let me ask you, did anybody remodeled their house recently? I remodeled my house five years ago. We did this little addition and did some new, like, windows and different things. And when you remodel your house, have you noticed that there's always a project that doesn't get done until you, pro- most, mostly it's until you go to sell your house, right? And then all the things you wish you'd done for years suddenly get done. Uh, so I have, we, we did these windows and I, I picked out this really cool casing I liked and we and uh, painted it all up except for this one window that was behind the couch, kind of hard to get to. And uh, it's been five years. And one window still isn't painted and the holes aren't filled, right? Because it was like, oh, I should do that, right? And I ran out of time the first day when I was doing it all. And then ever since then, I should do that. That's kind of important. I should do that. And five years later, it's still not done, right? (laughs) Anybody else have one of those projects? Yeah, I didn't think it was just me. And, And why is that? It's because getting that done for me, maybe not for my wife, but for me, is moderately important, like, I see it, and I, I acknowledge that's kind of, I should do that. That's kind of ridiculous that I have a window that's, it's been five years and it's not painted. But it's not, like, it's moderately important. It's not important for me to get up, get out the paintbrush, like, move the couch out and do it right now, right? But one thing I have noticed about things that are moderately important for us, things we treat as moderately important tend to get neglected in our lives. Have you noticed that? Um, Things we treat as moderately important in life have a tendency never to get done, like my five-year window casing, right? You just thought, you know, you kick the can down the road, and before you realize it, years have gone by. Things we treat as moderately important in life often end up feeling very important in retrospect. I bet you've noticed that. I bet you have an area of your life Um, When I was a teenager, the oil light came on. And I'm like, oh, that might be kind of important. I should check that sometime. And I kept driving. That didn't end well. (laughs) Like, that ended with a new engine, right? And some of you have areas of life that you right now wish you had treated as more than moderately important, don't you? That as you look back, maybe it was a health thing and you just ignored something for a long time or, you know, you ignored what you knew you needed to do and and you're facing some stuff right now because of that. Maybe it was getting prepared for retirement and you're like, oh, yeah, I think, yeah, maybe someday I'll uh, I'll quit working 80 hours a week. But you you didn't really plan or prepare. And maybe some of you are like playing catch up right now because you're like, oh, gosh, that's I need to get moving on that. Right. Maybe it's a relationship. And you know, the busyness of work or stress of life or whatever, you have a relationship that you ignored or treated as moderately important. And right now, that relationship is in crisis and you're struggling because of that. Now, when it comes to our faith, uh, I found this amazing quote. It's one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis. He writes it in a book, a little book that he wrote called God in the Dock, which is a British expression, I had to look it up, uh, in the dock, it's a British idiom where somebody would be like defending themselves in a trial, the accused. And so he actually writes this in, in this book, and the idea is God is the one being accused, and it's a kind of an apologetics book. And he says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Stop and think about that. I think it's so so profound. He says, hey, if this is all false, it's really not important. Like, you're kind of wasting your time here. hate to break it to you. I mean, this is Western Colorado. There's lots of things to do. Um, It's kind of a lame hobby if it's not true, right? 
if true, it's of infinite importance. And that's what we're going to look at today. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And, and here's the issue. is for so many people that identify with church or identify with the name of Jesus, the reality that's lived out in their lives is that this thing's yeah, kind of important, moderately important. And what we're going to do today is walk through this passage of Scripture and really try to get you to ask, where am I at in my relationship with Jesus? Honestly. Because you know what? Uh, you, you know in life, if you want to get anywhere, you need to be honest with yourself, right? This is where I'm actually at. So, if you have your Bibles, flip on over to John chapter 5. We're going to pick up in, in verse 18 here in just a moment. But just to remind you um, of where we're at in, in this chapter of John and the account of, of the life of Jesus. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, which they didn't like because they had all kinds of rules around the Sabbath. Uh, you know, God's got a handful. They created about 1,500, the religious leaders did. And so he, Jesus then tells this guy, um, pick up your mat and walk, which he knows is going to tick off the religious leaders. And so the religious leaders are really angry, and they begin to persecute Jesus and accuse Jesus. And in response, Jesus, and we saw this last week, actually makes a wild claim to divine authority and status. And because of that, in verse 18, we come, we come to this. It says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And something about Jesus that I've noticed is when it comes to Jesus, people in our culture, people that sort of orbit, you know, church and, and um, maybe, you know, say I was born Christian or whatever, but, it, but really haven't engaged in it that much. Um, people in our culture are pretty much typically okay with Jesus when it comes to his authority as a um, rule breaker. Have you noticed that? Jesus, the rule breaker, like this. They have all these petty, silly rules about the Sabbath, and Jesus breaks their rules and heals on the Sabbath, and there's something in all of this that's kind of like, yeah, we like a rebel when the rules are, are silly, don't we? I mean, there's some of you, you're like real followers, but then there's some of us a little, got that little like, we like the rebel, don't we? The one that stands up to the man, stick it to the man, right? We like the thing about Jesus who brings status and equality to those that the elites despise. We like that. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. He like includes people. He puts people on this equal status. He elevates women and children. So we like that Jesus. We like Jesus the healer. And I know some struggle to believe that, although, you know, something that the historians, including like Tacitus and some of these others that just hated Christians, they all acknowledge that Jesus did amazing, unexplainable things. He was a miracle worker. Even those that like are trying to oppose him, they, they acknowledge that fact. It's a historical um, reality that you got to deal with if you're a skeptic. And so I know some struggle to believe that like Jesus shows up and does things, but boy, oh boy, when we're in a situation, we sure like people to pray for us, don't we? You know the old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. And I've almost universally seen that like when somebody's going through something and you ask, can I pray for you? It's like, yeah. Even if they're like, normally, I don't really know if I believe this, but hey, couldn't hurt anything, right? There's something in all of us that, that kind of likes that about Jesus, which is why I tell you guys all the time, when you discover, when you're having a conversation with a coworker, friend, family member, somebody that maybe doesn't know Jesus in your life, uh, one of the best things you can do when they're going through something is, is ask, can I pray for you? Because almost always the answer is yes, even if they don't believe it. And I, and I believe God works through prayer. So anyway, that's a bunny trail. But we like Jesus the healer, don't we? But here's what you have to understand. They didn't kill Jesus because he broke a few of their rules and healed some people and fed crowds. They tried to kill him for claiming the very authority of God. That's why they, that's why they were determined to kill him, like this verse says. And see, it's, it's, it's not easy for us in our culture to accept Jesus' claim, his divine claim to be Lord of all. 
Because I think, because if he's Lord of all, that means he has authority over our lives. He has a claim over our lives and how I need to live my life, right? If he's not Lord of all, I can just kind of pick and choose what parts of Jesus' teaching I want to follow. Kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure Jesus. Anybody watch that Netflix uh, Bear Grylls, that, uh, that one? My kids love that because, you, you know, you push the button, you decide if he's going to uh, drink, like, swamp water or he has to, like, get airlifted out. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, choose your own adventure, right? We like to, like, chart our own thing and decide what we're going to do. And, and if, if, uh, if Jesus claims, if he's just a moral teacher, we can kind of pick and choose what we think works for us, right? So we can take maybe what Jesus says about adultery seriously, but when it comes to where I let my thought life go, or when it comes to the bitterness and the unforgiveness that I hold in, in my heart towards someone, that's kind of my deal. I kind of, you know, I'll do that. That makes sense to me. But this, I'm going to hold on to that. Jesus says, you should deal with that. You're like, maybe I should. Moderately important. I should do that. Kick the can down the road. Never get to it. That's why I think that quote we started with from C.S. Lewis is so insightful. Because if Jesus is God, what he says about life and what comes after life can never be moderately important. If he's God, you better pay attention to and prioritize what he says about how you live life and what comes after death. And so Jesus makes this wild claim and they try to kill him because of it. And then Jesus in this next section, and John writes this as he's recalling this conversation by Jesus. He writes this in a way that actually it, uh, reminds the people in the first century of a trial scene, like I said. Anybody like some good courtroom drama? You know, law and order or something. It's always engaging and you hear the, you, you hear the arguments, right? Um, I, I remembered a quote from a few good men, uh, old Nicholson. You know, you can't handle the truth. I went and looked it up on YouTube. It's a great scene, right? This prosecution. We like a good courtroom drama. My, my parents always told me I should be a lawyer because I was really good at arguing, which I'm not sure as a kid was a good thing, you know? <laughs> but what we're going to see in this section is Jesus is going to offer a defense, and then he's going to turn around and actually prosecute the prosecutors. He's going to put the religious leaders on trial, and they're going to discover that they can't handle the weight of his argument. There's no defense other than to get rid of Jesus. And so in verse 19, it says this. Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. We looked at that last week. And whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you'll be amazed. You ain't seen nothing yet, right? Verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And here's what you need to kind of catch on this. And there is so much depth in this chapter. We could be in this chapter for weeks if we kind of broke down everything. So we're not going to kind of go to that level today. But let me just say, um, honor for the son does not reduce or diminish the father. See, Jesus is making this wild claim of equality with God. And we're taught right from the very beginning, John chapter 1, that Jesus is co-eternal, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal with God from eternity. And he says, when I, you know, in the goal in me coming here to earth is that all would honor the Son as they honor the Father. And we think, well, gosh, isn't that taking God's place or, or reducing or dis, dim, diminishing the Father? No. It's bringing glory to the Father, actually. Um, I saw yesterday uh, Brady's retiring. Did you see that? Yeah, that's the same reaction we got. There are other service. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Like, some of you, here's the argument we're going to be having, isn't it? Because you had the Manning, Brady, and who's the goat, the greatest of all time, right? And all that. 
Elway. Okay. <laughs> and so we have, because we are, the way our minds think is like, well, if he, if he goes greater, it diminishes me, right? And so, you know, if it winds up Brady, it diminishes Manning. Um, it, it doesn't work like that. Now, it does work like we're just going to have to watch a bunch more cheesy, dumb commercials because these guys are making bank, both of them, aren't they, on these stupid commercials? Um, so we're going to get to watch the, I, hey, I would do stupid commercials for that much money, too. I just, you know, I mean, I'm just saying it, you know? <laughs> so anyway, um, but that's not how it works with, with the Father and the Son, right? In fact, the way it works is the Son. As the Son is honored and glorified through the Holy Spirit, Bringing honor and glory to the Son, it brings honor and glory to the Father. I mean, it's the Trinity. To think that we can understand um, the infinite God as a finite being in, in kind of the grasp, the scope of it. That's why when we start talking about the Trinity, it's like there's no illustration that really describes it. You know, you can do water, you can do an egg, you can do all these different things that we try to describe it, and they're helpful maybe, but they all fall short. And what do you expect? He's infinite, the creator of everything, and we're a finite being, right? And so it's, he says the, the Son brings honor and glory to the Father as the Son is honored. And the reason, I think, is because Jesus reveals the heart of the Father to us. In fact, later on, he's going to go on to say that I and the Father are one, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which is why if you want to get to know the heart of God, you got to look at Jesus. you got to dive into who Jesus is. you got to read about Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus. And something else in this that you you got to notice is in, in Jewish faith, at this point, you know, 1,500 years into it is they've come out of Egypt and, all, and way back before then in Abraham. As in Jewish faith, as God reveals himself to us, two things we see about God that they believed, part of their core beliefs is that giving life and the final judgment are the prerogative of only God. Like only God has that authority. God holds that authority. Only God can give life. And only God gets to judge at the end. There's something common in monotheistic faiths. Now, did you notice here that Jesus says, I give life and all judgment has been given to me? Like, God gave me this authority, the Father gave me this authority and responsibility, and all judgment has been given to me. And yet I do what? The will of the Father. Why? Because we're one. <laughs> Blows your mind. And I, I can give life. And, you know, Jesus, last chapter, he healed the, spoke a word and healed the official's son who was on the death's doorstep, you know. And he's like, that's nothing. Wait, wait a little bit. I'm going to call this guy Lazarus out of the tomb. That's going to blow your minds. Jesus shows he gives life, both physical life. He can give it here and eternal life it's in his authority to give. And so I love it because Jesus, in his defense, instead of backpedaling, go, oh, let's just all calm down here. Uh, yeah, oh, you think you misunderstood me. I didn't really claim to be God. No, he doubles down. He claims authority that only God has. It's like that escalated quickly, right? Verse 24, it says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus said, here's what happens when someone hears my voice and responds. They actually cross over from a, a state of spiritual death into life, into real, true life. 
This is Paul, the Apostle Paul reiterates this too as, as he tells us, hey, here's what happened. When, when you received Jesus, he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you've been made alive in him through faith in him, right? Paul says the wages of sin is death. That that's the, the condition of the human race is in spiritual death. You have to be made alive, actually. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, every one of us. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, our culture, and even, you know, common thinking kind of in, in church circles for so many people is, you know, I kind of come to church. If I, can, I think I'm doing pretty good. I can tip the scales in my favor. I think I'm, I think I'm in. I think I'm in. And the message of the gospel is actually, no, you, you actually are, are dead if you have not embraced Jesus prays for your belief in him, being given life from him, been brought to life. You're actually dead in your trespasses and sins, in a, in a condition of spiritual death. Very different from sort of this thing of everybody's pretty much good. Humanity is basically good. And, and, and the, the truth of what Jesus would say and what Jesus teaches is, no, here's the truth. Humanity is in a state of spiritual death and rebellion. And yes, there's light because you're made in the image of God. So you, you do good things, but ultimately at the root, there's a problem that has to be dealt with. And I think this is so important for anyone who's like, I think I got this dialed in. I think I tipped the scales in my favor. Um, if you think that, just read the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. He does this crazy thing. I mean, it's like, you know, don't kill. Whew, check that one off. But if you hate your brother in your heart, it's like you've already done it. Um, don't do adultery. It's like, okay. But if you've lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. In your heart, there is a condition of spiritual death. I love it. C.S. Lewis, uh, who we started with, this isn't on the screen, but he, he puts it this way. He's talking about the Sermon of the Mount. He says, who can, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? That's how he describes it. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, Sermon on the Mount makes me feel warm and fuzzy. He says, I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of the man who can read the passage with tranquil pleasure. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he is jacking the standard so high that it's like none of us qualify. You think you're doing great, oh, religious leaders who check off all the boxes, but I see your hearts. I know what's really inside. You've gotten good at looking good, but there's death. There's spiritual death inside, right? He, he calls them literally like whitewashed tombs. Look really pretty on the outside, full of dead, stinking, rotten icky bones on the inside. That's how he describes it, right? But here's the, the, the beauty of this is the heart of the gospel is, yes, there's a standard and you fall short of that standard and that is very bad news. And you continue to fall short. But there's grace that I came to offer you life, not in, in trying to work and earn it and be good enough for it. It will transform your life. But that comes as a, as a result of embracing me and what I've done for you and then receiving the Holy Spirit inside of you who empowers you to live. And, and you notice, have you noticed something? That for those of you that are followers of Jesus here, you continue to struggle with some things. Have you noticed you've had the same conversation with God about certain things in your life a number of times? And if you, yeah, and if you had the same conversation, you know, with somebody that you employed, they wouldn't have a job, right? <laughs> but he continues to have grace for you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Grace, not just a one-time thing, ongoing as we come to him. It's the beauty of the gospel. Grace. But it comes down to what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Does he have no importance to you? Is it sort of moderate? Kind of important. 
what he says about the reality and about the truth is of infinite importance. Are you listening to his voice? He says, my voice goes out starting then. It's continued now. Have you responded in, his belief, in belief as he draws you? And for so many, it's, it's all about this affinity with church and religion. It's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I was kind of born a Christian. Somebody asked, um, you know, what's your faith? Christian. There's this trend. Uh, Barna has done polls. And um, there's this trend in our nation. And I know in Western Colorado, I think we're probably 10, 15 years behind New York, Washington, L.A., some of these other places. But it's the increase of the nuns, which is people that will check religious affiliation, none. And it's, it's growing and growing, especially in the younger generations, right? Some of you that, that are teenagers understand this or in your early 20s because you look around at the people you go to school with, your friends, and you're like, wow, for so many, there's just no, like, affiliation with Jesus or even with Christian. They just, they, no, I'm not any of that. I'm not religious at all. And it's growing. And let me just say, as, as a symptom of a culture that's walking away from God, um, that breaks my heart. But one point of light in there is, is as it no longer becomes culturally convenient to be a Christian, those who are truly followers of Jesus um, will be much more clear, right? Because for some, it's just like, I've, I have, you know, affiliate with Jesus. It's, you know, I know my spiritual life's important, so I'm back at church. I want my kids to have this moral framework in their life, so I'm back at church, but ultimately it's just sort of moderately important. And because of that, maybe this has been your experience, maybe, maybe you're back, and if you are, we're so glad you're here. Maybe your experience has been, you know, about the same as a New Year's resolution, right? That you, as your New Year's resolution gives up and you kind of give up on it and move on, uh, sort of that's your spiritual life too. And you look back and maybe the end of the year you start thinking about it again. But in the busyness of life, it just sort of became moderately important. And the question is, is where are you at with Jesus? Not do you affiliate, you know, were you born into a Christian home? You have a good morals and values. Those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. The question is, where are you at with Jesus? Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Do you follow him? Or is he just this moderately important sort of spiritual component of your life? Do you actually trust him for your salvation? Have you heard his voice? Have you responded in faith? And let me just say, if there is no active desire to follow and, enjoy, and obey Jesus in your life, um, if, if you don't see any fruit of transformation in your life, it, it's a good time to stop and take an inventory of where, where am I at with Jesus? Because I think for so many people, you, you're either resisting the transformative action of his Holy Spirit within your life, and Paul tells us in the scriptures that you're grieving God, the one who died for you. You're grieving the Spirit of God. Or you've never actually really embraced what he's done for you. If that's you, you have an opportunity to embrace him, to trust him, and come into life. Verse 27, and he, God has given him, Jesus, authority, authority. There it is, the authority of God. Authority to judge because he is the son of man. Ties back to Daniel and the judgment scene that Daniel chapter 12 at the end, when multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Ties it in right there. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good, what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Again, the unified will of the Father and the Son. And Jesus says, he has given all judgment and authority. Revelation. See, see uh, the people of the time understood resurrection as being one time at the end of history from Daniel. When all people would rise and there would be a final judgment, God would put all things to right. 
That's, that's the, the Judeo-Christian perspective. Now, the amazing thing about Jesus is he breaks into the middle of history as the, Paul describes it as the down payment of resurrection. As he rises from the dead and doesn't just die again in a few years like Lazarus and some of these other guys, right? But in a resurrected body. New creation beginning. And so we see this scene here that Jesus references, and John will have a revelation more of this towards the the end of his life, where he'll see a great white throne with Jesus seated on it, and the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and he'll see the books opened. And one of the books is the actions of people, and it won't be just the things they've done, but the heart condition, right? The heart condition. And then another book that's opened, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. And you want to have your name written in that book through faith and trust in Jesus. Because those whose name is written in the book of life do not experience the condemnation of that judgment. Their sin is covered. It's paid for. So Jesus talks about this authority. Later, he'll say, a crazy statement. I mean, you got to deal with the statements of Jesus. Like, that's why Lewis says it's either not important because this guy's crazy, or you got to wrestle with the things he says. Later on, he'll say, All authority has been given to me <laughs> after his resurrection. All authority. Wow, that's quite a claim. All authority. And see, we struggle with this. And when it comes to judgment and all these things, even as a pastor, these are hard things, right? Because these are not popular ideas in a culture. It sort of sees everyone as basically good and, you know, everything all works out in the end and all that. We, we struggle with this concept about Jesus' authority to judge. That's where actually in that book that that, that quote came out of, C.S. Lewis says something else. Um, the book God in the, in the Dock, God Being Accused, he says this, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. Throughout history, we under, there was a reverence for God that was like, okay, he has the ultimate authority. Here, here's what shifted in the last hundred years. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is, in, he is the judge. God is in the dock. God is the one who's being tried. And I think as you look at culture, and I think many times even in our own hearts, we find ourselves coming into this place of going, God, defend yourself. Proverbs says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And who are you as a finite human to accuse God? Read the book of Job, right? It messes with me every time. See, this is why the message of Jesus cannot ever be moderately important. Because you have to wrestle with what Jesus says about life and death and forever. And if you choose to believe what he says, it's infinitely important. Why? Because this life is just a blink in the scope of eternity, isn't it? Just a blink. And here's the thing. Um, we, we mourn when someone dies at a young age, right? I think that's a natural human reaction because we've missed years of life with them. I've done some very difficult funerals. And then we've been doing some funerals that are actually pretty easy because we see it as, man, this person lived a great life there. Late in life, you know, did my grandpa's great guy, accepted Jesus. And here's the truth, is whether somebody like goes what we would say tragically young or whether somebody lives to 100. In the scope of eternity, the difference is not even measurable, right? When you compare this life to eternity, um, I, I heard we've got this uh, Grand Junction athlete competing in the Olympics. She's, she competes in biathlon which is where they cross-country ski, and then they shoot, um, you know, target. So it's like this mental, physical, really hard sport. And, you know, the crazy thing about the Olympics is a lot of the 
a lot of like skiing and stuff, it's a hundredth of a second that separates people sometimes, right? Maybe a little bit more in biathlon. Let me tell you, if I'm competing against her, it's going to be like 10 hours of difference, right? I'm going to be like back there, lung on the side of the trail. You don't want me shooting a gun at that point, right? <laughs> but for a lot of these guys, it's like a hundredth of a second. And see, that's the way it is with this life in eternity, is in the scope of eternity, it just it goes by fast. And everybody I talk to, it doesn't sound like it slows down, really. Can somebody like over 50 in the room say amen, right? That's why it can't just be moderately important. Now, in this final little section here, and we're going to move through this quickly. Jesus is going to bring in witnesses to his de defense. And so he says this, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Here's what's going on, back all the way back to Deuteronomy. Um, in Jewish faith, everything must be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So it's not Jesus saying, you know, I'm not telling, wouldn't be telling the truth, but Jesus is saying, hey, in this culture, um, we know that things must be confirmed, so let me draw in my witnesses. You need things confirmed by two or three witnesses. I'm going to give you half a dozen. And so first, he, he makes this cryptic reference to the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, who still to this day is the one who is there to honor and glorify and draw people to Jesus. That for some of you, you, you might have gotten up and come today, or you might have tuned in online today, and the, the reason is you just felt something drawing you. I think that's the Holy Spirit of God. And so he brings honor, he brings glory to Jesus. He witnesses to Jesus. 33, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you might be saved. Human testimony does draw people to Jesus, which is why it's so important for you to open your mouth and share Jesus with the people in your life. To ask people, can I pray for you? Because God will use your testimony and the things that God has done in your, in your life to draw others to him. But it's deeper than that. It's funny. I like this. He says, so you have John, John the Baptist. It's confusing because we have John the author, John the Baptist, right? John the, John the author is the apostle John. So he says, you sent to John, and he, he, he witnessed. He was the one who identified Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not that I accept human testimony, Jesus says. And I love this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Because what you believe about God doesn't change the reality of God. See, this is where the truth and reality bump heads with the current climate in our culture, which is, I have my truth, you have your truth, everything's just as valid. Well, if what Jesus says is truth, that can't be true. And so you got to ask yourself, there is something that is truth. And it's a very unpopular idea in our culture, right? Where two plus two can equal five. Do the math on that one, right? But this is where our culture is going. And, and here's the truth. Just because you don't believe Jesus is God, it does not just diminish his authority as God. Um, you can choose to believe that when the cop lights go on and, uh, you know, you, you pull over that he doesn't actually have you the authority or have the authority to write you that ticket. But if you ignore that, you're going to bump into some reality, aren't you? Some of you ignored a parking ticket uh, I won't make you raise your hands. You forgot. And then you spent a couple hours in jail cell. I've heard, actually, a funny story. Another pastor friend had one of his youth leaders on a way to a camp get pulled over and had to go to jail. Um, <laughs> and may or may not have left him in jail for the weekend, just saying, you know. <laughs> anyway, okay. You, you can choose to ignore reality, but it doesn't change reality, right? In this age of your truth, my truth, hey, the, what you need to do is be intellectually honest. If what Jesus says about himself is true, you need to evaluate your truth, not vice versa, right? 
And in this post-Christian culture where really religion is moderately important, and you see that everywhere, which is we see it in our culture as a whole as sort of this thing that sits over here, kind of like an accessory, and that's fine. You can have your faith, and that's kind of cute. And if that helps you, it's kind of like a crutch, you know. That's fine over here, and you can hold your deeply held beliefs, um, but just don't ever, like, make somebody else feel a little bit uncomfortable about their truth claims, right? That's our culture. And the problem with that is Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You got to deal with it. To be intellectually honest, you have to deal with what Jesus says. It can't just be moderately important. John, verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the works the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I'm doing testify that the Father has sent me. He says, hey, look at the works. You remember Nicodemus in chapter 3 comes to Jesus and says, we know you're from God because of the things you do. See, the, the works Jesus do, did did not just point to, man, what a powerful prophet. They show the very authority of God. He commands the wind and the waves. Next chapter, he's going to take a little boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people. That's kind of cool. Um, he speaks to demons. They don't argue back. They just obey. In fact, they're the only ones that early on recognize who he is. They know exactly who he is. They freak out every time they see him. He raises Lazarus. Like, you remember, he gives life. Lazarus, a man who's been in the grave for three days, they believe the soul separates from the body. You're dead, dead. Not just mostly dead. Anybody remember Princess Bride? Billy Crystal? No, your friend here is mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and actually dead. Now, he was dead, dead. He wasn't mostly dead. Boom, brought to life, walks out of a tomb. And see, we believe that the same God who worked powerfully in the world still works today powerfully through the power of his Holy Spirit, right? Which is why we pray and ask God to show up and move in mighty ways. We humbly present our request to him. We don't think we can, like, twist his arm and manipulate him into doing things. It's still like, God, if you, if, if you're, if you will, right? But sometimes... He blows our minds. And I think we don't pray enough and ask him to show up enough because there's something in us that doesn't really believe that, right? Anyway, verse 37, now Jesus turns the table and prosecutes the prosecution. He says, the father who sent me has testified, has himself testified concerning me. You, pointing at the religious leaders, have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, God is speaking. The question is, these guys were so stuck in their religious paradigms that they missed the very heart. Here's what's going on here. This isn't, man, they, they just studied their Bibles too much. No, they actually probably had a good share of the Old Testament memorized. The point is, you applied so many of your own traditions, the Talmud, all these commentaries, you know, the 1500 Sabbath laws. You've applied so many of your traditions that you've missed the heart of, of the message because the whole story, Jesus says, is actually about me. And you've missed it. You've missed it. And see, in our culture today and in church culture, um, I don't think there's some that, like, you know, you, like reading the Bible becomes a religious task and, and you can check it off on a list. That can be a problem if you've lost the heart of looking for Jesus and loving Jesus. But for most, the problem is biblical illiteracy that just as a culture as of Christians, we're just not in the scriptures. Well, how do you think you're going to get to know Jesus? The story's about him. See, here's what happens. If you're not in the scriptures, if you're not in the word of God, you just make up your own version of God. Guess what? That's not, he reveals himself to us in scripture. That's how you know God. 
And if you approach it with a heart to love him and know him and obey him, like the psalmist says, your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's the heart of what we, of what we live out when it comes to the scriptures. These guys became a dead religious ritual, and they knew details and knowledge and fact, but they missed the very heart of the story. He says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in the Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? See, the danger of a faith that's moderately important is that you can have an association with religion and even Jesus without having any real love for him in your hearts. Knowledge is no guarantee of a heart for God. The very ones who know the most in this account miss him because there's no real love for God in their hearts. Verse 45, let's finish this up. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? See, Moses, all the way back, he said, you're going to have a real hard time following God's law, but one is coming. One is coming. And he prophesies about Jesus. And then throughout the scriptures, over 300-some prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah, one is coming. And then Jesus shows up and says, I'm here. And their response is, let's kill him. I want to close with what we started with. This quote by C.S. Lewis. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let me just ask you as we close. Where is Jesus at in your life? Where are you really at in your relationship with him? For some, it's like... I mean, you know, you got to start by being honest with yourself, right? Not fooling yourself. Is he not really important? Is he moderately important? Or is he infinitely important? You know the right answer, don't you? But where where, where are you really at? See, there's some that you're, you're like, you know what? Honestly, um, I just don't know if I believe all this Jesus as divine stuff. Because of that, I don't know that he's really important. Let me just say, if that's you, and you're just here kind of checking out God, church, and the Bible, I'm so glad you're here, and I respect your freedom to choose that that you don't believe yet. Let me say, um, no one can or should try to manipulate you to believe. This isn't like work it up, no. But I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm going to keep asking, hopefully, telling you to ask good questions and get question, you know, your questions answered because there's great answers to a lot of the questions that you may be stumbling on, right? I'm going to keep praying that the Holy Spirit continues to draw you because for some of you, that's why you're here today. Because I meet, believe what Jesus says that you will meet him someday. But in the meantime, just know, hey, you're welcome here in community as you search these things out and as you struggle through this. For some, hey, you're just in that place where if you're honest, it's like, it's kind of moderately important. You know, I'm kind of in this thing because I know a spiritual connection is important and I want my kids to grow up with a good moral framework like I did. It's the, you know, the, the religious thing to do. But I don't really know if I've ever truly trusted him. And if that's you, maybe today is the day that that changes. Maybe today, as we've gone through the scripture in Jesus' words, you've been confronted by what Jesus says about himself, and something has clicked, and you feel belief rising up in your heart. You know you need to give your heart to him, fall in love with him, worship him as your Lord and Savior. Allow him to begin to transform your life through the power of the Holy Spirit.
as he fills you up. Others of you, you that happened for you a long time ago. But, there, but if you're honest with where you're at right now, there, there was a time where Jesus was of infinite importance to you. But the busyness of life or the pain of a disappointment or the seduction of a sin has drawn your heart away from him. And if that's you, he's inviting you to re-engage. Maybe prayer is shrunk to like, you know, just meal times or bedtimes with your kids, and that's kind of just it. Or, you know, if you read your Bible at all, it's just kind of been a checklist, not from a heart that wants to know and love Jesus more. Maybe there's an area in your life where you've minimized his authority. You've said, you can have this area of my life, but stay out of this area, Jesus. And if that's you, today he's inviting you to repent, to turn around, to go the other direction, to realign, to ask him to refill you, fill you afresh and anew with his Holy Spirit. You can cry out to him, tell him how desperately you need him. And as we close in prayer, I hope you'll do that. Would you stand? Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And as we do, if there's anyone in the room that you know your step is, I, I, I feel belief rising up in my heart. Take that step. Acknowledge that. You can pray a simple prayer like this. There's nothing magic about the words. Lord Jesus, I, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died and rose again. I trust you for my salvation. Forgive me and welcome me into your family. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, for the rest of my friends here, I just want to ask that you would, um, you would give them, just let them know how this applies in their life. Let them know that you love them, that, they're, that your grace is with them, that they would respond to you, that they would realign their heart and life with you, that you would not just be moderately important but they would re-engage in their hearts for your kingdom in this world. We pray these things in your son's name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.